Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Listeners of the Global Marketing Show, I am happy to have you listening to us today, and I'm sure you're going to like this episode a lot. It's very exciting to me. And before we get started, I just want to remind you that the podcast is sponsored by Rapport International, who connects you to anyone, anywhere in the world by providing high quality written translation and spoken interpretation services. And just for fun, I went to the website, Rapport Translations, and I went to the current blog to see what was posted. And the latest blog is called The Goldilocks Principle, How to Start a Global Marketing Effort. So if after you listen to this podcast, you want to learn more, you can head on over to Rapport Translations. And in the search bar up top on the right, you just search the Goldilocks Principle and it'll bring you there. Plus, there's a ton of other information. So thank you so much for listening. Today, I am going to introduce Ken Wasilek. He is president of EM Wasilek Associates that was established in 1998 to assist and support businesses of all sizes with the prerequisites and intricacies of international business expansion. His expertise and experience lies in business, sales, operations, marketing, and financial consulting to companies, both in the US and non-US based that are emerging or expanding globally. He has an MBA from Thunderbird School of Management and a BS in accounting and finance from Marquette University. Now, I met Ken when his company was in D.C. accepting the E-Award from the Department of Commerce. This is the highest award that a company can get in recognition for U.S. exporting or services to support exporters. Congratulations on your award and welcome to the Global Marketing Show. Thank you very much, Wendy. It's a pleasure to be here, and it was great to, to meet you in D.C. as well at the E-Award ceremony, sponsored by the, I mean, brought to you by the U.S. Commerce Department. Yeah, yes, they did a very nice job of recognizing awardees. And, and mm. you caught my eye because you offer services to help companies go international from whatever com- country they're in. And I've often like kind of got this rumbling of once companies do it, they get this feeling of, you know, what I got was, I wish I had gone global earlier. But in talking to you, you said that in your experience over the 25 years of doing this, you get more of the feeling of companies say, oh, it appears that we're late to the market or the competition beat us here. Can you tell me some more stories about where that's come up? Well, From a U.S. perspective, and I think that's what we're talking about is from a U.S. perspective, and most of our clients are small, medium size. So they can't be in every market, in every global region, all at the same time, or initially. You just don't have enough resources, and even the multinationals have to prioritize. So when you start doing your prioritization, you're starting to look for the best markets for your 
product or service. And once you establish a beachhead in one market, two markets, three markets, then you try to expand that outside, kind of leverage your uh, into our market uh, place presence and increase your brand awareness. But in doing so, there's a lot. There's always a lot of competition, and I what we see is that when you enter a U.S. company enters, typically the Europeans or the Asian competitors are there already, and so now you have to be somewhat tactful, or tactical, I should say. At the same time, being very strategic in trying to gain a market position when your competition has been there already. And we've seen this, we work with a food service and healthcare mobile solutions provider here in the US, and they see great opportunities in the Middle East. And the reason being is that the Middle East, when oil is $100 a barrel, there's a much construction in developing the infrastructure, especially on the healthcare side. On the food service side, There's a lot of competition, but there's also a lot of advancements in restaurants and hotels and build out, especially, let's say, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and the Emirates, and now in Qatar because of the World World Cup coming up. But what you see is that your European companies have been there for 20, 25 years, because it's very natural for them to, if you're a German company, to go into France and go into Italy or, or alike. Or from a U.S. perspective, if you're a company, let's say in Illinois, it's natural to get into the next state to the left, to the to the right, to the east or south, but not necessarily take that big leap 6,000 miles away. And so what we're seeing here is that, okay, now you have to be much more innovative, much more tactical, kind of scrappy, find your niches, and then you build from those niches. And of course, when you get there and you're doing your market research, you, you're saying, well, it probably would have been, if it wasn't for competitor A, B, and C, I would have a better chance, or I would, I would see a greater opportunity. And this is where I'm, I'm coming from, saying, okay, the competition is here. But this is very similar to in the United States. A lot of times people ask, you know, about, because we also work with non-U.S. companies coming into the United States, a lot of European companies and Asian companies trying to find markets here in the U.S. And I, I consider the United States the most competitive market in the world. Why? Everyone wishes to be here. Everyone sees a large market. In fact, we have a client from Europe and they're like, they're saying, hey, if we were third in the market in our space, and let's say it's France, we would have a very small business. But if we're third in the United States, we're still going to be, could be hundreds of million dollars in revenue. So even if you're not one or two, you still could have a, a large sale share of the marketplace here where you don't you're a u.s company and if you're under 500 million dollars and under 500 employees you're considered a small maybe mid-sized company and if you've got all this expansion that you could do in the u.s why should you go global well a lot of companies ask that question and i would say one diversification 
So you diversify while a lot of markets go to get in tandem, not all markets have the same economic cycle. Secondly, I mean, I know co- companies that survived in 08 and 09 because they had more than um, 30% of their business was international. In fact, I believe the UPS did a survey like in 2010, 2011, and those companies that had a very diverse international market, while the U.S. was in a, in a deep recession and much of the world was you know, declining, or I should say recessionary, having a diverse market uh, customer base not only led to surviving company companies surviving but they actually grew because their competitors did not have their diversity so you know why grow, go global well first of all diversification so that's a risk enhancement right I, I would say mitigator and then the second thing is that typically you can in many many markets you can find higher profitability because what, what it is, it's a leveraging of your existing products here in the U.S. So all the R&D and, and alike for the U.S. product, if you can leverage that by localizing to a, a second, third, fourth, fifth region or market, the profitability tends to be much higher when you, when you increment accordingly. Now, there's extra expenses to, to actually do that. But, but overall, why do you do anything in business? One mitigate risk, and secondly, for profitability. Okay, yeah, that's that was really well said. I'm glad you talked about that. Now, I think you mentioned before we got on here that the hardest challenge companies have is choosing where to go. Can you talk about some examples? Like, is it, do you recommend one country? Do you recommend a certain area or how would you go about helping to solve that for a company? Well, it, it, it depends on one. Of course it your, depends. Huh? Yeah. It's, <laughs> well, I'm an economist or no, <laughs> it depends, right? Everything depends. <laughs> right. Or, or a lawyer. The, it really depends on the product or service that you're offering. Okay. From a U.S. perspective, again, should we go towards the North, Canada, towards the South, Mexico and, and Latin America or Europe? Middle East, Latin America, Japan, where. And so one of the things that we provide as a service, and especially for smaller to medium-sized companies, let's say under 50 million, is a market research, what we call a top line, where we actually analyze maybe 50 countries on a set of criterion, let's say 10 to 20 30 criteriums is very specific. And we're not necessarily talking about GDP or import, export, but very specific to that particular market or product or service. And then it highlights exactly maybe where's those best opportunities. And from that, then you start looking at what resources you have and the difficulties of doing this. So if you're selling something that is heavy in weight and low value, you're not going to pick a market that's far away from a distance logistics point of view, but you might pick something that's relatively close, let's say Canada or Mexico. Okay. And then you, you, the next step is to really look at your internal resources to see the acclimate you have for those particular markets. Um, 
speaking and, and exporting initially into other markets in the Western hemisphere, you're all on the same time zone relatively, plus or minus two or three, four hours. Whereas if you go into Europe, you're already six, seven, eight, nine hours ahead. And Asia, you're 12, 13, 14 hours you know, behind. And so that tends to be very difficult at the very beginning of trying to navigate the time differences and trying to increase the communications. So we kind of look at the internal resources of the company, see where their strategic plan is, look at the overall opportunities, and then pick two or three company, countries or markets to go after first, increase that learning curve. And one of the points that we would actually look at is what's the competition like in that particular marketplace, of course. And if there's heavy competition, well, you could be spending a lot of money and getting very little market share, where there could be other smaller markets where you can gain bigger market share. It's kind of an reading... example of a, a couple of companies that you've done this for, whether you, sure. you know, give it by industry or company name and, and how they turned out very different even though they may have been similar industry or product or service? Sure. We have one client where it's very US centric. And let's just say the fluid that goes through a CNC machine gets very dirty over time. And then it kind of turns into a sludge. And then that has to be cleaned out under the CNC machine. This product is actually a product that takes that all that fluid, that sludge, actually filters it out and extracts about 98, 95%, 94% of the oils in this particular coolant and that can be recycled. And you know, CNC, any type of machinery creates a lot of heat on the, on the metals. And so you have to have a coolant to actually do that. So they asked us, where should we have the best markets for the, our product? Well, the best markets are anywhere where there's advanced manufacturing, anywhere where there's heavy manufacturing, any places where CNC machines and lathes and all these other automatic uh, machining tools are, are being done. So Mexico, Canada, Korea, Japan, Germany, England, Brazil. And so we did a wide spate, but it turned out that these machines were and the logistics costs were could be prohibited. So when we looked at maybe, let's say the heavy manufacturing points where, you know, Germany, let's say Germany and France and, and let's say Spain and Korea and let's say Vietnam, China and Malaysia, the best opportunities from a business standpoint was really Canada. And because there's heavy manufacturing in, in Ontario as well. And so this worked out really well because their first step outside the United States ended up being directly into the Canadian market. The second was the Mexican market. And not only, we didn't really go into Cancun and Acapulco where everybody wanted to, we went to the, the states that have heavy manufacturing. So like Guanajuato and Chihuahua, these areas where it's not glamorous or Monterrey, but there's heavy, heavy manufacturing, both automotive, industrial manufacturing. And so those particular markets became very important to the company because if there was a downturn here in, let's say right now, downturn in manufacturing, those, especially in Mexico, really picked up 
really picked up. And you're seeing a lot of reshoring right now, you know, Asian companies, you know, doing the manufacturing because of all the supply chain. Mexico is, is enjoying a lot of activity just because it's closer to the United States. And so mm. we've seen a real pickup of our clients' business just because of this reshoring as well. Interesting. Okay. So that one is a, a perfect example of where they could have gone to a lot of countries, but when you started, you weigh in their internal machine, you know, their machines, what they're selling, they're heavy. So how about another example where you would have picked another country? Sure. Um, we have another client that's also in, uh, has a uh, mobile solutions for the healthcare industries. So anything in a uh, hospital or a clinic that's on wheels, let's just say. And so we kind of look at, you know, where are those best opportunities uh, to go after? And yes, Canada has a, a large market, but it's, you know, healthcare is, is nationalized. Mexico has healthcare, but not necessarily at the Western standards. We looked at European markets. There are multiple c- competitors in Europe. The Japanese market turned out to be highly regulated when you start talking about medical equipment or medical furniture. And so then uh, while we did the analysis, we, it, we really kind of focused, we focused on the middle, middle East and the Middle East is healthcare. There's quite a bit of infrastructure development and investment, especially at a hundred dollars barrel. There's new medical facilities or hospitals being built all the time. And then the, so we said, okay, from an American perspective, we exhibited at Arab Health, which is the biggest, one of the biggest healthcare trade shows in the world, next Mm -hmm. to Medica in Dusseldorf. And what we found, it was that there was a high propensity uh, of uh, American products that have a very good reputation. We are dealing with company countries that have good regulations, but not prohibitive regulations, regulatory barriers, non-tariff barriers. And there's some really good opportunities. Here again is in a market where the Europeans have been there for, you know, since the British have been there in the 1930s, 1920s. So there was a longstanding, you know, how do I say, understand, uh, or I should say acceptance that European companies are well-established. But what, well, sometimes when there's well-established, they're not very innovative and they get complacent. And so we found our niches with various distributors. And now after about four years of really good, hard activity, we're seeing the fruits of those labors coming in with the, you know, orders coming in every week now. So does language and global marketing ever come into your considerations of where to go? Sure, definitely. You know, one of the great benefits that Americans have is that we speak English. And it's really thankful for, in my opinion, two things. Number one, the English British Empire at one time basically had English speakers kind of evangelizing the language all, all through the world. The second thing is that the Allies won World War II, both in the Pacific and in Europe. And so the de facto second language for most people, especially in business, is English. The third factor is that the internet 
was invented here in the United States. And the de facto language for the internet is English. Now, other, other languages participate and add it on, but it all started, you know, with the .com, right? Not .jp or .de, it all started with .com. Well, that really helps an American company because if you're speaking, when I started doing business internationally 40 years ago, heavily worked, lived on, worked with the translators, no matter where, where we went. And so one of the limitations we had is that if my second language was Spanish, we really stuck to the Western hemisphere, right? Now at Thunderbird, my, my language was German. And so it was wherever the Germans were, were there. And so I was dealing with you know, West Germany at the time. Uh, if you took French, then it was the Francophone areas in, in France as well, as well as Quebec. So it really comes into play if you can speak in a local language, especially when you get into the, what I would call the second level of management in any kind of business. Typically, the top management will be bilingual or trilingual. But then when you start talking about the, the guys on the street, that's when you have to speak the whatever the local language is. And it really helps if you are bilingual or trilingual to actually do that, because then you can really understand the customer base, really understand the market, really get a feel for the culture. And I was just in Japan last week and the Japanese, how they go about business is much different than how we Americans do. So if you speak a little Japanese, you kind of, you really kind of understand where they're coming from and how, how they do business, I would say. Right, right. Okay. So it is a benefit to speak English as an American company going international because a lot of people have it as their second language, but language is very important. Otherwise you're only going to be maybe talking to the top level, but any consumers right. or other employees, you've got to have those, those language skills that are included in your expansion plan. Well, absolutely. And then even if they're bilingual, we have to understand that it's their second language. So the, the slang and all the colloquial proverbs and all this type of things. I mean, I have multi-event. I mean, I was in a, a meeting in China where the top guy was, spoke very good English. And I was talking to my colleague next to me and the, our Chinese counterpart asked, you know, can you do this with this particular product? Can you make these modifications? And the engineer that was my partner next to me said, yeah, it's a piece of cake. And then maybe two minutes later, our Chinese host, this is 11 o'clock in the morning. So it says, okay, I guess we'll have lunch now. And we said, well, you know, we can still talking. It's a little, or, and he says, oh, no, no, no. You, you guys are hungry, right? You guys want a piece of cake, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right. And we said, oh, no, that's just an expression that it's doable. What's doable? Yeah. And so even an individual that, you know, spoke English on a regular basis just doesn't, and obviously, isn't localized. So if you can speak Chinese, then you can really understand and really re respond uh, appropriately. And uh, our staff, myself and our staff, we've all lived overseas. So we, we kind of understand the nuances 
that you have to speak very clearly and kind of avoid all these idiomatic expressions. Yes, yes. There's been instances at Rapport International where the team has provided interpreters, even though the top executives speak English well enough to get by, just for situations like that, that, that you know, just to make sure that the communication is clear, have a professional in there that understands both cultures. And the internet did start in English, but I heard an interesting story about a podcast that was broadcast from India. And at first, the, the host started broadcasting in English because so many more spoke, so many more people spoke English and he thought it'd be easier to get an audience. But when he changed to his local language, his listenership skyrocketed because there was such a demand for people who wanted to listen in their native language. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, not everybody's, I, I, you know, how many billions now? Seven some billion people in the world? I mean, not, yeah. not everybody's bilingual, right? Or English speakers, right? And this, right. Uh, uh, this is, again, if, if you're speaking at the, usually the business owners uh, on an international business, but, you know, his staff, he, his or her staff will uh, most likely not be very fluent in English. Yes. Um, yes. And so, you know, if you really want to know your customer, you got to ingrain yourself, immerse yourself in the market. And step number one is to understand some of the language. So the services you offer are really helpful to people that are starting to expand internationally. And the Department of Commerce and the State Trade Export Services offer a lot of these. And some of, some of their services are for free and some you can get grants for. And there seems to be an overlap of your services. But I know when I was talking to you in DC, you could clearly separate out what they are. And so I wanted to hear from you as to when somebody would go to the, the Department of Commerce and state trade exports and when they'd come to you, because I think this would be really helpful for us and the, the trade centers. Well, they would come to both of us. I, and we work very closely with the U.S. Commercial Service. We work very closely with the export development centers and the district export councils that are in various states. I'm actually a member of the Wisconsin District Export Council as well. And we're very close to many of the export agencies at the state level as well. The state's charter is to basically in, increase the exports of their, their state companies for to increase employment. I mean, that's, let's be very honest about that. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and the way they do that is multiple ways. They have offices overseas. U.S. Commercial Service has the Gold Key, which is a distributor search. They have the market research reports. They do trade ventures and trade missions. They have a group of make one-on-one -on -one in, in invitations and, and alike matching. I should say one-on-one -on -one matching. All of this is fantastic. The, all this is very, very helpful. But at the end of the day, there has to be a transaction made negotiated, and then executed. And this is where the state organizations in the U.S. Commercial Service doesn't have a charter for. So to negotiate what price should be in that contract, to negotiate the volumes, to negotiate the marketing spend, to negotiate the technical factors, what the the state and U.S. Commercial Service does is bring the parties together so that they meet each other and talk to each other.
but they are not chartered to actually consummate a transaction nor implement that transaction. That's where we come in. We want to be the executors. We want to be the guys, the boots on the ground. We want to be the ones that says, okay, I'm in the booth at the trade show. You might have, let's say, for example, the Florida Pavilion at a trade show in Germany. And, but there's somebody from the company that's standing there doing the product demonstrations, getting the leads, getting the cards, and then doing all the follow-up. That's what we do. We do all the execution of that. And then once you have the follow-up, then it's a sales process. So then you have to continue that sales process uh, over a long period of time. And that's why we're with clients, our average a tenure with a uh, client is, uh, I believe now about seven years. So we have one client that I've been working with them for 21 years. And we, I, I believe we are starting a new client the next week. So the mean average is about seven years. So we've got long-term relationships with these clients. We understand them. And our job is to get into the market, travel into the market, meet with the represent the distributors, the dealers, the retailers, and consumers, if it's a OEM type product, to actually consummate and execute the, the sales process. We also do quite a bit of market research. Market, market research that the state organizations tend to be a little, how do I say, more, not overreaching, but- the, Overarching. Overarching, thank you. Yeah. Overarching where they'll say the medical market for, let's say, surgical equipment, neuro, neuro, you know, orthopedic surgical equipment is X. Well, a client, if he's making, let's say, instruments for you know, orthopedic surgery, they want to know exactly who's their customer, methods the, into the market, and fundamentally a customer list. And not necessarily what the market overall is. The market overall kind of goes back to our earlier questions or discussion about how do you choose what market to go after? But once you do, you want to go deep and it gets should be very specific and very detailed. Whereas these reports go maybe you know half the way, but not necessarily all the way. And so we'll augment all these by saying, okay, you know, this is a market, this is where we're going to do a deep dive. Now actually find out. We actually did a market research for client project where the, the client had a aftermarket piece of machinery for 90 ton trucks that do haul, you know, materials. So in mines, and they wanted to know the population of these multiple models of Caterpillar and Komatsu trucks in what mines, in what states, in like four countries in Latin America. This type of detail is, you know, the U.S. Yes. commercial service could say, yes, the mining industry in, in Chile is, is this, but to actually pinpoint that there's X number of, of CAT 787s at these particular mines that gets very, very specific. Okay, what a wonderful explanation because it's clarified in my head who I would refer to you and who I would refer over to the, the state. They, 
it is definitely two good resources. I hate to say this, but we have run out of time because I think I could get a ton more great information from you, but <laughs> it's time to ask you what's your favorite foreign word? Oh, my favorite foreign, I, I, I would say my favorite phrase in every culture is no problem. So it's inshallah in, in Arabic or Mandanai in Japanese or Mewanti in Chinese or, or no problem in Spanish or time problem in, in German. But when, when you hear the other side say, oh, 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 be careful. Oh, okay. So in the U.S., we'd say no problem. And it means like, I've got this under control. I'm going to do it. You can depend on it. But if you hear it in another culture, it yeah, you could don't, mean it, it could there's mean, a problem. I, there could, it, it, well, it, it means you have a problem because oh. you usually it's, well, there's no problem, but there's a few glitches, but I'm not going to tell you about them or no problem. I heard you, but I really don't understand what you're saying or, or inshallah basically means, ah, you know, well, well, you know, hopefully God will will us to make this happen. And so this, there's multiple things where I've heard the no problem. And then you have to kind of go to the next step here in the States, even us, we will say, oh, yeah, 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 no problem. And then <laughs> you see if there was a follow up to it. Oh, that's hysterical. I just, yeah, I just read something on, I think it was social media that was talking, a business owner was saying, yeah, don't use or train your customer service reps not to say no problem when they're talking to customers, because first off, it's a, it's a negative, it's a no, and it's a problem. And so there, you know, there was a list of better things that you should have them say. And now you've just expanded it so much more that you know, there's a hitting meeting in there. So I love it. Any last words of recommendation for anybody that is exporting or thinking about exporting? Well, probably the, the last thing is that if you want a diverse career and a diverse you know, experience, just a life experience. The best thing to do is to go outside their home territory and experience the other side. Many times we talked about the Americans versus Europeans. The Europeans are very travel oriented. They understand and they're very worldly. Where, and if you really want to expand the knowledge and I would say just the life fulfillment, go see the world and try to do business outside your home country. It's, a great, great, great life to have. That is such fabulous, such, such fabulous. I want to, I'm here applauding and stomping my feet and banging the table going, <laughs> I love that. Absolutely love that. Well, Ken, where can people reach you if they're interested in learning more about your services or want to learn more about exporting? Sure. sure. Well, we have a LinkedIn page, Mossack and Associates. Um, reach you want to spell at, that for everybody so they can sure, find it? Sure. Mm-hmm. E.M.W.A.S.Y.L.I.K. You can reach me at Ken.Waslik, W.A.S.Y.L.I.K. at E.M.Waslik.com or give me a call at 608 850 5643. Either Thank way. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, so much for sharing your email and your phone, because I think you've got a wealth of information that people can really, really learn from. So thank you for being here today and taking your time to share. Absolutely. Wendy, thanks again for asking me. Looking forward to if there's a second that we could keep going. I know we're out of time, but we always like talking about our business and what we do. And it's an exciting thing they do every single day. Yes, yes, absolutely. So listeners, thank you so much for listening today. This is very, very valuable information. If you know anybody that's in manufacturing, since we got into a couple of those, you know, companies and talking about their story, go ahead and share this episode with them. If people are thinking about going internationally, or if they've started their venture out, this is a bunch of really good information. If you enjoyed this, also give us a five star or follow it. So you make sure that you get in, in notification when we launch a new episode. And if you've got something to share on the Global Marketing Show, if you're doing international business and want to talk about your experiences, you can apply to be a guest on the show. Just go to Rapport Translations and search for podcast and you can see the application link there. So thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure to have you listening and to have fascinating guests here. So we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.